So, this morning, so we'll be, well, that's kind of loud. So we'll be uh, ringing all over the place. Acts 17 is where we'll be. And I know you guys can hear me, but the only reason why we put it through that thing is just so uh, we can put it online and then people can like listen to the sermons online that way in case they miss a Sunday morning or something happens. That's the only reason why. It's not like because I like to hear myself talk because that's not... If you know me, that's just not... I'm not into that. So, Acts 17. So if you've got a Bible, you can open up there. And pretty interesting this morning. So I'll prepare you from the outset. It's going to involve a little bit of thinking. The brain might get a little bit of a workout. Not too much. We're not going to go crazy. Uh, but it might be a little bit. And the reason why that is, is because in this passage, Paul is going to be in a place, he's going to be in Athens. And basically, when he shows up there, he obviously wants to tell people about Jesus Christ. He wants to tell them about this Christianity. But where he's coming, there's some pretty heavy, some pretty dominant ideas of the day. And these are the way people are thinking about God, about the earth, about themselves. And so they think they're really good ideas because they're like the latest ones. It's where the philosophers come with ideas. So they're just sitting around and they talk and they just debate ideas of the day and they just think about it. And so in their own opinion, they think, you know, this is pretty good stuff. And, uh, you know, some of it is some highly advanced kind of logical thinking. But Paul wants to come in and tell him about Jesus Christ. And so, sometimes Jesus Christ doesn't fit into our logical box always. And uh, he's going to come in and kind of shake things up a little bit. But he's also going to set forth in motion what really is entailed, what really uh, spirituality and religion and what that is all about. And I think in 2011, we could probably also use a little help with that too. I mean, this is a passage that 2011 and spirituality and religion, it's everywhere. And so on on one of the next slides, look at all those signs, right? Those are all like the religious signs and spiritual things that are out there. The cross is obvious and then, you know, you get the Jewish star and then uh, you should probably try and play a guessing game, see how many you can get. What do we got? Three... One, two, three, four. We got twelve of them up there. See how many you can actually get. Uh, but Hinduism is up there. Buddhism is up there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ones up there. So, if anybody could be confused or maybe not quite have it clear, you know, it could be us. So it could be to our benefit to really say, "Hey, what is really going on?" And so to help this out a little bit. There's an article that I have, and I'm not going to read you the whole article. Just a little bit, a a short excerpt from it. uh, It's from the Oprah Winfrey magazine. She has a platform, and she talks to a lot of people. And she's got her own network. I mean, she's been around for 25 years. She's got a platform, and a lot of people listen. And it's probably safe to say that uh, a good chunk of them probably agree with her. You know, she has a pretty heavy influence. So, in her magazine, she, uh, she Oprah did not write this article herself, another woman did, Um, but if you ever listen to Oprah or say anything on her show, uh, her opinion is pretty much about the same. So I wanted to just read off this excerpt just because I think it does a pretty good job as far as explaining where we are at, probably better than I could do it. So here's what it says. It says, America is in the midst of a spiritual revival, interesting, right, with millions of people in search of renewal and purpose. I'd probably agree with that. 
Nearly 100 million of us live without connection to a church, synagogue, temple, any of those. So nearly 100 million. And this is according to the Barna Group, which specializes in surveys of Christian behavior and belief. But at the same time, a majority of these Americans without religious affiliation describe themselves as spiritual, some even deeply so. Right? So that's interesting. So all these people, 100 million, they don't really go to church, not part of anything, but they would say they're deeply spiritual. Today, people equate spirituality with growth, discernment, experience, and authenticity. So when they think about spiritual things, that's what they're really thinking about. God doesn't necessarily have to be at the forefront of the picture, right? So they think about growing as a person, being able to decide what's right and wrong, what's moral, what's not, uh, their own experiences, and what's really genuine and authentic. You know, what can I really buy into? Um, it says they're saying, yes, I want to have a connection to the sacred, but I want to do it on my own terms. And I thought that one really jumped out to me. I was like, man, I could think of that for sure. And who wouldn't want that, right? I want to have a connection to the sacred, but I want to do it on my terms. Terms that honor who I am as a discerning, thoughtful agent and that affirm my day-to-day life. The trend towards spirituality is real. It's just hard to gauge because there isn't a church of being spiritual. Right? It's hard to gauge that because you don't really have a church that just focuses on growth, discernment, experience, authenticity, just those factors as a whole. Right? Usually when you have a church, there's some higher being of some kind that's involved in the process. and so. But people kind of want to get away from that because they want to be in a place where they, also, they have these things of growth, discernment, experience, authenticity, but at the same time, they want it to be inclusive with everybody and not have everybody, anyone on the outside of that. And so this is kind of the mindset, the idea of the day. So when Paul was approaching Athens, which we'll read about in a minute, it was, believe it or not, very, very, very similar. And, you know, the big word pantheism, and let's look at stoicism, epicureanism, all these words, right? Nobody really cares about those, but they care about what were people thinking, what was really going on. And it's very similar to us now. And before we jump into it, I want to read you this, and then we'll kind of close and we'll look back at this. It's an old... uh, Indian poem, not like Native American, but like the country India. So we have a ne- on the next slide. Interesting picture, right? So the picture is, in case you can't tell, it's a picture of an elephant, and you got a bunch of guys with suits on. I thought it was funny because the guy said suits. And they have these glasses on, right, because they're supposed to be blind. And as you can tell, they're all touching different parts of the elephant. Right, you got a bunch of guys, they're blind, there's an elephant, the elephant's like, what are you doing? You know, so they're touching him, kind of a weird thing. But why? So here we go. Um, it says, let me make sure I got the right passage here. Okay, so here's the analogy, this is kind of summary of the poem. There are four blind men who discover an elephant, hence the elephant, hence the people. And some of them have four or five people. It just kind of depends on the Indian poem that you read. Since the men have never encountered an elephant, right? So that's the assumption. They've never encountered one. They grope about, seeking to understand and describe this new phenomenon. One grasps the trunk and concludes it's a snake. Another explores one of the elephant's legs and describes it as a tree. A third finds the elephant's tail and announces that it's a rope. Right? So you've got these different things. A snake... Right, a tree, a rope. You have the fourth guy. After discovering the elephant's side, 
he says that it's a law. So there are all these blind guys, they've never seen an elephant before, they're touching different parts and they're saying, hey, this is what it is. So it says, each in his blindness is describing the same thing, an elephant. Yet each describes the same thing in a radically different way. Then another person steps on the scene, typically the guy's name is Raja, wakes up to the commotion and says, hey, listen, the elephant is big. You touched only one part. You have to put them all together to get the elephant. Right, so that's the poem. And that's sort of the idea. And so he's trying to describe really religions there. And where God is like the elephant and like, you know, we're all sort of kind of blind with our own things. We're all touching a different part and maybe it just talks about and touches the whole thing. So the question we got to think about anyways is really how true is that? How does that, you know, really relate? Is that a good analogy? Is that fair? And so I'll leave you with that cliffhanger for right now. But we will, I promise, close up with that and take a look at it. All right? Interesting. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe you haven't. It's usually a favorite of uh, philosophers and philosophy class and stuff like that. So we'll come back to it. So if you got your Bible, hopefully by now, um, you open up to Acts 17. And we're going to start in verse 16. Verse 16. And just to give you a quick recap, and we're not going to go really heavy duty into this, but basically, as you can tell by now, Paul is making his rounds, going any place he can, telling any place, anybody that will listen about Jesus Christ and the saving faith of him. And so basically in the beginning of 17, he was in a place called Thessalonica, telling people about Jesus there. Some people received it well, some didn't. It's kind of a common theme. It usually happens when Jesus is presented right there. It just divides people in half. Some like it, some don't. And basically the people that didn't like it worked up a good enough mob, kicked them out of there. So then he went to this place called Berea. And you guys talked a little bit about this stuff last week. Uh, and in Berea, I don't know how much uh, it was mentioned last week, but it was really significant that the Bible, right? So we believe that God wrote the Bible and it's exactly how He wanted it. He used people to do it, and uh, over 40 different authors, over a span of you know, almost a thousand years. But we believe that He did it. And so when God composed this and He wrote through Luke and Acts, He made it, uh, a specific attribute to them that these guys were noble in character in Berea. They were noble in character. You won't find that too many places in the Bible about God describing a certain group of people like that. And why were they noble in character? Why would He say that about them? Well, He said that because when Paul showed up there, they didn't just really take what He said and just was like, ah, oh, well, sounds good to me. He seems pretty smart. He's educated pretty well. He's pretty passionate about it. Uh, he has some charisma. You know, he's pretty... People are listening... Sure, sounds good. They didn't just take him at that. It says what they did was they listened to him and they said, okay. They gave him a fair shot and they said, nah, I'm not quite sure, but okay. But then what they did is they went back and they studied on their own. And they spent their time, they said they spent their time day and night researching, just saying, hey, is that matching up? Is that what he said? And they're going back and they're going. And so God says, someone who does that, that's noble in character. Now that's going to give a whole new depth to their understanding and to their faith. So educating ourselves and doing that kind of thing and taking being proactive about it, something that's important to God. And so, in Berea, he did that. They're noble in character. He's talking to them. Uh, but sure enough, the crowd that was in Thessalonica that chased them out, they followed them down to Berea, <coughs> excuse me, and they chased them out of there. And so what happened is, <coughs> they had, uh, they told Paul, I said, listen, you got to get out of here. 
just get out of here and uh, I think it's south. Go south and hang out in Athens for a little while. And what that happened is, is uh, Timothy, right? we talked about Timothy before, Timothy and this other guy, Silas, they stayed there for a little while longer in Berea uh, and, they, and they shared with them. And so we pick up in this story where Paul is in Athens like waiting for these guys. And so if you put yourself in Paul's sandals and you're there waiting, you know, what would you be doing? Paul's a guy that like can't sit still. He's got to be doing something. And something probably for God and uh, he's just... He's got to be doing something. So that's where we pick up. Verse 16. So it says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he shows up at this place in Athens and he just sees idols and statues and monuments all over the place to all different kinds of gods. These guys were religious. They were spiritual. Kind of like how we are. I mean, we got signs for everything. We got stuff for everything. You name it, we got it. And we will make it adjust to each group of people accordingly. And they had that too. So verse 17, what does he normally do? Right? He can't sit still. He notices stuff, so he's like, okay, I, I got to go tell people about stuff. It's driving me crazy. <clears throat> so in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue. So it was typical ML, right? He goes in the synagogue, wants to talk to the Jewish people. So he goes to the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So what did he do? He did his usual normal thing. He'd go in the synagogue and try and explain to them that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah. But he doesn't want to just stop with the Jews. He wants to tell all the Greeks too because he's in Athens. And all these Greeks are all these ones with all these ideas and they're the ones that made up all these monuments and that have all these different spiritual ideas and curiosities. So verse 18. It says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dis- dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? I'm sure my students in class have said that probably three quarters of the year. What is he saying? And it says, Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, right? They haven't heard of this one before. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So without getting too deep or too heavy, the Epicurean people, these guys, there's this group, their big thing was, without getting too much into it, their big thing was pleasure. As long as you could live life and just really maximize pleasure, the most they can, you're really getting the most out of life. Whatever's going to you know, make you feel good and make you happy, you should really pursue after that. Really in a nutshell. I mean, there's a lot more to it, but I'm just trying to summarize it the most accurate and best way that I can in a short period of time. These other guys, the Stoic philosophers, these guys were kind of what they call pantheistic, where basically God is like in everything and like everything's like a part of God and so God is like in the trees like he's in us and he's just and we, and the goal is really to be he's in matter they, they like to use that phrase and so he's really in everything so as long as we become closer and a part of everything like we're closer as one together and so that's kind of where they're coming from so they're kind of the opposite of the uh, Epicureans where they kind of value self and what you have and what you want to get and pleasure the other guys are like no 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 you kind of have to like get rid of that stuff and like kind of be one with everything and that makes the most sense. So this is what he's battling. 
And somehow he's got to come in and talk about this Jesus Christ and a cross and just uh, to- totally different things. And so that's where they're like, what's he talking about? And then they threw in at the end there, he's talking about resurrection now. And in their mind, that was like, resurrection to them was like, why would you want to rise from the dead and come back to this place? To them, that was just like craziness. They're like, why would you do that? Why? That doesn't make sense. It was really foreign to their minds. So, let's pick up. Uh, verse 19. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. And so I think I got some pictures up here. That was the map. Maybe on the next one here. Just so we can kind of get an idea of where he is. And so basically, this is like Athens back then. And up over here uh, is like where the Parthenon is and they have a lot of different worship things. Where Paul is, he's over here. And the name for that, he's on that hill right there. And the name for that is Mars Hill. And so sometimes you hear like Paul uh, being referred to like speaking and talking uh, like his sermon at Mars Hill or speaking at Mars Hill. That's where it was. It was just on that hill uh, right there. And that's, that's kind of where they're talking and debating all these ideas of the day. And on the next slide, we can see one like, this, is a, this one's like fairly recent. Right? Fairly recent. So it's really just a big mound, just a big hill right there. And so they're up there talking and debating this stuff. And so... Let's go. So verse 20 says, You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. And we want to know, and we want to know what they mean. So verse 21, All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Right? This is what they did. It's how they spent their day. They just want to get smart. Try and figure stuff out. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Right? And he recognized that. And I don't think he's being sarcastic or he's like trying to give him a hard time. He's like, listen, I can see, obviously, this is something that matters to you guys. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And so these guys were so religious and so spiritual, they just wanted to make sure they didn't leave a God out, you know, and maybe offend it, and just they want to make sure they're right on all areas, right? And so, I don't know, I think logically, I guess it makes sense. If you're not quite sure, let's make everybody happy and just do the best that we can. I mean, it kind of makes sense. And so Paul says, I'm going to proclaim to you about this unknown God. So in verse 24, here's what he says. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. So it's kind of crazy right away. He just starts away that there, one, there is a God he made the world and everything in there, and He's Lord of all of it, and He doesn't live in temples <coughs> built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything, right? We don't uh, serve God. If anything, He served us by dying on the cross. Because He Himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determines the time set for them and their exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. Right, and that was kind of what was on the beginning slide there that was kind of hard to read. It looked like the eye exam thing. Right, God is not far from us. For in Him, right, there was a saying kind of back, the, uh, back in that day that, uh, <clears throat> that was part of a poem. 
For in him, the, the poets of their day said, for in him we live and move and have our being. And so he's quoting like their own speakers and poets of that day. He's that familiar with them that he could even, you know, bring that message to them and conform it to what they understand and what they know. He said, hey, you guys are saying there's this God where we live and move and have our being. He's like, I'm telling you about that God right now. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so again, he's quoting them and saying how, you know, we're really made in the likeness of God. So in verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. So he brings up this resurrection thing again. They're just like, what are you talking about? So in verse 32, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Arab... Arab Aeropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So, some people started to buy into it, but again, anywhere he goes, kind of people are just kind of split on it. So, some interesting things. Some of those mindsets and things are not too different, really, from today. I mean, if we talk about Hinduism, for example, I think it's the third largest religion in the world. Hinduism, not one particular god. Millions of gods. And so, trying, and their belief is that trying to be one with each other and with the world, and then you could die and reincarnate many times, you know, until you really get it right. And so, being one with the whole, with the whole earth, that view is really not too different than what they were talking about, you know, really then. <laughs> Buddhism kind of falls under the same thing, and so. You know, you have Siddhartha Buddha who kind of started the whole thing and uh, basically by age 35 he was able to resist all the things that he needed to and really reach his place of nirvana where he could just end all his desires because the big thing about Buddhism is that suffering is a fact of life. It's going to happen. And the reason why it's going to happen is because we have desires. That's why. So I desire to, I don't know, live in a house and uh, you know take care of my family. Uh, so now I got to work. I'll get disappointed and right. So somewhere in there, suffering is going to happen. Uh, I desire to see you know my family and, and, and things be healthy, but sometimes that won't, and so suffering is going to happen. And so we have the desires to do things in life and to be places and do things, but at some point in time we're going to be let down, whether it be through your job, through your spouse, through your friends, whatever it is, and you have suffering. And so, for Buddhism, the idea is if you could eliminate those desires, because those desires are wrong, we shouldn't have those desires, if you can get rid of that, to the proper place, you can eventually reach the ultimate state of enlightenment, and nirvana, and supposedly the first Buddha, Siddhartha Buddha, did that at age 35. And then once he did that, he set forth kind of these truths that Buddhists have to live by and that they should try and do. 
so interesting things, you know, these, all these ideas. And then you have, uh, you know, a new age movement of where you want to focus on, kind of like the article we were reading, as far as being like a better person and being more moral and trying to do the best that you can, not excluding everybody, but also giving everybody kind of a fair shake and being tolerant of everyone. So these are the ideas of the day, kind of what we're involved in. It's not really that unforeign to us. So, what do we do with some of this? Anyways, on the next slide, I think we have, hopefully it's the next one. I think it is. First thing I think we got to ask, yeah, back to the first one. Am I aware of what is being discussed around me? Right, from this passage, here, here's where this question is coming from. Posh goes up on the scene, he's with these guys, and really he's kind of able to plug in right away. With the Jews, of course. He goes in the synagogue, and the Bible and the scriptures is something that he knows, and so he can just talk right with them and kind of just flow right into it. With the Greeks, on the other hand, I didn't know he was this diverse or this adaptable. He just goes right in with them and is even able to quote certain poets of that day and really knows what's going on around them. And he's able to work with that and then from there bring Christ into the picture. That's, that's a skill. Right? That's a skill. And that's a good ability to read what's going on in these times and how Christ really relates to that. That's not an easy thing to do. Now, all of us are in different places, right? Some of us are in just kind of the beginning spot of just trying to figure out God and what's going on and like how all this relates and what's going on in the Bible. And so, you know, you're kind of more focused on that right now and just learning about and seeing what's going on and what God is really like. Some, of, some other people have been around for a little bit while and they know God a little bit more. And so it's probably worthwhile to now start thinking about what are these other things that are out there? And how does God really relate to that? Because that's like kind of like another level. That you learn about God and figure out what's going on and learn about His heart and how He feels about me and how He loves me. And hopefully from there we can start sharing with other people and letting them know about it. And then He starts to work through us. But it's hard to do that if we don't even really know what people are talking about. And so we should know and at least have some knowledge as far as what's around us. Now we could spend seven or eight Sundays just going through. We'll do Buddhism this week. We'll do Hinduism next week. We'll do New Age the week after that. We'll do Mormonism after that. We'll do Jehovah's Witness after that. And we'll just hit them all. Every week. We could. I mean, we could. Uh, and front end all that information. Typically in life, that's just not the way it works. Usually you start to care and involve more about those things when something in your life is like pertaining to it. So, if you had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door within the past couple of weeks, then you're like, okay, like I want to know, you know, and start to get involved in that, and then you start reading about it, and then get involved with it. Or, uh, like I just heard the other day, you know, a friend of mine is just getting into Buddhism now, and so, uh, you know, now I want to know a whole lot more about Buddhism, you know, because it's right in front of me, and there it is, and so let's talk about that stuff. And the way I know that I will be most effective is when I can really understand what he's thinking, what's really said as far as the Buddhist faith, and where does Christianity fit into that stuff and like, you know, really what's going on? As far as all that desire stuff like we talked about before. You know, because as far as I'm concerned and what the Bible says, like God has put desires within us. We I mean, right all the way back in the Garden of Eden. God said, 
you know, to Eve, and your desire is going to be for your husband. Right, right? In the very beginning, like God put that desire in there for a husband. He put desires in us for him. So as in classes, we were made by God and for God. Right? So I think God put some desires in there, but, you know, Buddhists would say, well, no, that just leads to suffering. You know, so I, hopefully I have an answer to that one now. And then we can kind of go back and forth and just have a good conversation about it now. But being aware of what's being discussed at the time, I think, is critical and crucial because otherwise, you, you know, you just, you're not aware of what, where they're coming from. And so sometimes you can just keep throwing information at them, but they're just really not being receptive because it's not being delivered in a way to where they can really understand it. Because a lot of times for me, you know, if it's in the Bible, hey, that's good for me because I already come to terms with myself that the Bible is real and that's like infallible, error-free word of God. Other people, they just don't care. So, I mean, you can picture yourself if you go somewhere and someone wants to have a quote-unquote spiritual conversation or religious conversation and let's say you can't use the Bible. Let's say you can't use it at all. You can't refer to a verse and be like, oh, this is that and this is that. Because they don't care. You know, how, what would you say? How would you share it? It's a worthwhile question to think about. Right? I mean, what would you do? What would really go on? And that's why there's so much value as far as when missionaries go different places that they really get their training and they know where they're getting, what they're getting themselves into and where they're going. The kind of culture that's there and you know, how all that stuff works. So there's so much value to that. And on the other end of that stuff, you know, just knowing kind of family members, friends, where their faith is at. But like I said, again, there's different levels. Some of us are just figuring this thing out and our faith is just now coming to a new place. But for some of us, been sitting on it for a little while and gaining a little bit of knowledge, and now it's time to really let God work through us and maybe even read some things or soak in some things that we would really never even, that we don't even really want to read about. But we're doing it because we love and care about that other person so much. Anything for the sake of the gospel. The next point is that hopefully when we are aware of what's going on, would I be able to share the message of Christ in a way that people around me could understand it? Right? Because Paul was able to do that. Not only was he aware of the ideas of the day, so he knew what the Stoics were thinking, he knew what the Epicureans were thinking, um, he was familiar with those ideas which just kind of goes back to the last bullet point. But then from there, like we talked about, he was able to take it to the next level as far as how can I get it in such a way where they'll understand. What kind of music are they listening to? What kind of websites do they check out? What kind of magazines are they into? Uh, where do they spend their time on YouTube? Where are they spending Facebook time? Like, what, what are they doing? What are they into? Like, what's going on? And the cool thing about this whole process and about doing this is that it really gives you a great appreciation and love for that other person because now you're investing so much of your own time and effort that you really don't have to and you're just learning all about this person. And that's really the way it should be because God really, you know, at the end of the day, we, it has to be rooted in love. Because if it just turns out to be a thing where, oh, I just want to tell them about Jesus and make sure that they get that faith in Jesus that they need to have and then you're done with them and just walk away and 
you just start treating people like projects and it's just it's not really a good thing at all <clears throat> so taking the time to do these things and really get involved into people's lives to this degree is totally 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 worth it totally worth it you know what they're reading what their interests are and then you can have a great conversation with them and go back and forth because a familiar phrase is nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care and that literally is true. That goes such a long way. They could care less what your title is, what you do, what you read, what you've been around, until they really know that you're actually really caring about them and not what you're hoping for them to do. It's not really going to work out. It's just not going to work. <clears throat> so, what happens with the elephant, right? What happens with the elephant and so maybe we can go back to that slide with the elephant there. You know, what's happening with that thing? What's going on? Well, I think in two points. I think in two points when we take a look at this elephant. And I wrote them down here. Uh, one, I don't have them up here, so I might have to write them down. So two points. <clears throat> Every faith represents just one part of God, right? That's why they're blind and they're touching it. So every faith represents just one part of a larger truth about God. Each has only a piece of the truth leading to God by different roots. Okay, so that's one of the points that they're trying to get across with that thing. Every faith represents just one part of a larger truth about God. Each has only a piece and leading there <clears throat> by different roots. Here's the other point it tries to hit home. Right, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that cultural biases wherever we grow up. So whether we're in the U.S. or from Africa or from Brazil, <clears throat> wherever we are, <clears throat> have blinded us so much that we can never know the true nature of things, right? And that's why they're blind and they hold on to their thing and they say, no, it's a rope, that's what I know, that's what it is. So if I'm in America, no, it's the Bible, it's Jesus Christ, you know, that's what it is. So if I'm in India, no, it's Hinduism, that's what it is, that's what I know, and that's what it is, right? <clears throat> so it's blinding us so much that we can never know the true nature of things. Truth, and here's the, the bottom line, truth is relative to culture and no standard really exists. So basically, wherever you go in the world, you know, the truth about God and spirituality and religion, it's really relative to your culture, whatever you grew up in. Because that's what you know. Okay, so those are really the two things that's really hitting home. Each faith just represents a part of God, one individual truth, and then the part, the part of them being blind, so that truth is just really relative to your culture. So, is it a good analogy? Does it really make sense? Well, I don't think so for a few reasons. Because one thing is, right, if God is this elephant, okay? Say, whatever. He's an elephant. He must have some big tusks, right? Um, if he is the elephant, the kind of the assumption when you listen to uh, this poem is that he's mute, right? So if God is the elephant, I'm assuming that the elephant could speak. Like, why couldn't he? Couldn't he speak and tell these guys what's really going on? That isn't God really capable of speaking and telling them, hey, listen, you're just touching my tail. Hey, listen, you're just touching my trunk. Hey, that's just the side of me. Hey, here's the whole part. And so that's one reason why I don't really like it that much is because God is really this elephant. He could do anything that He needs to do as far as to let them know what's going on. And so that's one reason why I absolutely 
like the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible reveals himself to us through the Bible. I like the fact that he does that and lets us know and just doesn't keep us hanging on to something. Uh, the other point, as far as us being relative to our culture, uh, Christians reject other religions because of lack of exposure. That's kind of like what it assumes, right? So basically, I'm going to reject what other religions are saying because of my lack of exposure to them. Now, I guess maybe that would be true if I just kind of grew up in my little like bubble kind of Christian world and I never really went out and studied or read or had any conversations or really spent some good, hard time with it. I'll tell you what, this week, I mean, I have before spent a lot of time reading this, but man, this week I just read so much stuff. To, I have all this stuff in my brain right now, just like about New Age religion and Scientology and just Buddhism and Hinduism and just, just all this stuff that's just up here and I'm trying to separate it and just like have it make somewhat sense. Hopefully it made sense somewhat today. But it's just, there's just all this stuff up there. And so, I guess maybe I'd be blind and have those glasses on if I chose to not get exposed to any of it, and then, yeah, I think that's a problem. But then if you go out there and if you take a look, and a lot of these religions and what's being said, it's all pretty radically different. Really radically different. In fact, so different, there's no way it could possibly be the one same elephant. Totally impossible. When you get down to the core of what's really being said and what's really going on, there's no way. And the last problem that I have as far as this elephant poem is that you have the guy at the end of the poem, right? He comes out and he says, hey, listen, the elephant's big. You're just touching a part. You've got to put it together to get the whole thing. I've got a problem with that part uh, because apparently this guy is the only one that sees clearly. He's like the king in the story and he's the one that gets it. So who's the one that sees clear and who's the one that gets it? If we're all blind and walking around, like who really knows what's going on? How can you just say that right away? So I think, you know, the poem and the thing has a fallacy right in the very beginning. I mean, that's what we're all trying to figure out. But yet in the poem, one already has it all figured out. So, I don't know, it kind of sounds nice to start off with. Oh, it's like an elephant and we're really all one and we're just getting to God through different paths and through different ways. I don't know. I think honestly, the more time you spend, and I mean really like good quality time just spending and seeing what these people say and what's really going on and what's really at the heart of these other things, you're going to tell they're radically different. If you really spend the time, anybody can look over real fast, there's kind of breeze, but if you, I mean, if you really spend the time and even pray about it while you're doing it and then meet some people and talk with them about it, you're going to find out some pretty valuable things that, you know, I'm not, I'm not thinking and buying into this whole God is just here and we all got our different ways and we get there. Because as we really take that time and study and look, it's really quite a bit different. So, Paul, being in Athens, confronting the ideas of the day, I think is totally applicable to us in 2011 because we got lots of ideas of the day and I don't know if you've heard the term before but a lot of people think we're living in a post-modern time which really all that really means is we've kind of tried the whole religion and God thing and it seemed like 
what really happened with that. And so now we're sort of creating our own ways to get to God and be spiritual. And that's kind of really the center of what's going on. And so, man, yeah, the ideas of the day are huge. And so now it's more important now than ever to get those true, genuine, authentic relationships that really focus on loving the other people. Because that's what really gets it done. Because unfortunately, really super unfortunately, over time the church has just done overall a pretty poor job. You're doing that? Uh, cut off. We're done with you. Oh, you said that? Uh, no, that's it. And unfortunately, they've gotten a really, really bad rap as far as judging people, writing them off, and being intolerant right away without getting all the facts and without knowing the whole story. That is sad. It's not good. And you know it's got to break God's heart. So let's stand uh, and let's pray and uh, ask God to help us with this. You know, there's so much that's out there. And so God, what we do is we come before you and first of all, we just ask that you would just help us in our own journey of faith with you. Depending on where we're at, we're all in different stages. Help us to uh, just grow in our faith with you and show us more about yourself as we spend time in your word, in the Bible, and as we try and eliminate the things from our life really that you know just wouldn't be good for us. Teach us more about you. And then God, we also pray that you would use us with other people in our lives because the Bible says you sprinkle us like salt and like light in the different places and it's crazy but you actually work through us to get to other people and so God sometimes that's difficult because people can be into some really weird and different things and so that might require us to do a good chunk of work and to really invest in them but that's at the heart of Christianity and doing that stuff. And so we pray that you help us to be able to be patient, to invest into people, and show love the way that we're supposed to. And God, we also pray that this church and then us as individuals, that we would able to be adaptive and relevant uh, to our community. Not to the point where we water down and ignore what the Bible says, but Help us to be practical and real and just be able to hit people where they are and have that ability. Not just give people cliches, uh, but to really be able to uh, figure out where they're at and where their need for you is, God. Help us to be better with that, Lord, because you work in the one-on-one. You work when we're in the coffee shop, uh, when we're at the mall, uh, just in the mundane, routine things through life. That's when we could just, a door might pop open and we could talk and share. So be with us, Father. So God, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and pray that you help us with this, Lord. And help us to go safely from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, so have an awesome week. Uh,